0: Welcome to the National Disability Services Sector Development Podcast. I'm Savannah Jewell, the Sector Transition Coordinator at National Disability Services. I'm joined today by my colleague Fiona Still, Sector Transition Manager, to talk about one of the important areas when considering the NDIS rollout. That is the relationship between NDIS funded supports and the responsibilities of the mainstream service systems. Thanks for joining us, Fiona. Great to be here. So when we talk about the mainstream services, we are referring to 11 government systems that all people, including people with disability, may connect with. These being health, mental health, early childhood development, child and family supports, school education, higher education, employment, housing and community infrastructure, transport, justice and number 11, aged care. All of these 11 service systems, along with the disability sector, have a role to play in achieving the vision of an inclusive Australian society. I think it's important as a way of introduction to this podcast to acknowledge the importance of collaboration, negotiations and the development of relationships between service systems to ensure people with disability have easy access to all the services that they need. Fiona, what does the NDIS fund? The NDIS
1: funds supports that are directly related to a person's disability, and it uses the reasonable and necessary criterion. This is criterion that's enshrined in the NDIS Act, and for someone to get funding for a service or support, it must meet all of the criterion in the reasonable and necessary framework. That is, that the support is related to a person's disability, that it does not include day-to-day living costs that are not related to a person's disability support needs, that the support represents value for money, that it's likely to be effective and beneficial to the participant, and that relates to there being an evidence base for that support. It takes into account reasonable expectations of informal supports given to the participant by their families, carers, networks and their local community, And lastly, and most importantly for the purposes of this conversation today, that the supports must be most appropriately funded through the NDIS. And that relates to the support not being the responsibility of another service sector Um, and one of those 11 mainstream areas that you've outlined earlier.
0: Can you tell us a little bit about some of the challenges faced by NDIS providers due to the complexities of the interface with NDIS-funded services and these other 11 mainstream systems. This has been an issue um, that's come up a lot as we've been talking to providers across Victoria.
1: So one of the challenges that the introduction of the NDIS has brought is that we're looking to introduce nationally consistent services and service provision and funding for disability supports across Australia. And up until the NDIS, there weren't consistent services across Australia, so that's changed. They're also at a local, state or territory level. There hasn't been clear distinctions made often between whether a support is funded within a disability lens or it's been funded um, through a health or other service sector. Especially for people with complex support needs, who's responsible for the funding hasn't always been clear For example, someone who is managing a health condition like diabetes who has a disability may have had that support provided through disability funding under the NDIS that, support for their health needs in managing their disability may be seen as a health responsibility, or someone who has a physical disability who is in the justice system will have responsibilities for their needs both within the NDIS and within the justice sector. Also, the NDIS has introduced a whole lot of new terminology, new processes, and many people within the disability and other service sectors are not clear now about who's responsible for what.
0: Sounds very challenging, Fiona, and I guess that leads us to my next question and possibly the most important question. Where can NDIS providers and indeed other people working within those 11 other service sectors go to find out more information about the roles and responsibilities of each system?
1: The most informative and important document that helps to inform the interface between NDIS supports and the other service systems is the COAG principles document. This document dates back to November 2015 and has the full title Principles to Determine the Responsibilities of the NDIS and Other Service Systems, and it's published by the Council of Australian Governments, or COAG. COAG is the peak intergovernment forum in Australia, Its representatives include the Prime Minister, State and Territory Premiers and First Ministers, the President of the Australian Local Government Association. In general, the Prime Minister chairs COAG meetings that are held twice a year to determine bilateral agreements around different service interfaces and government responsibilities. And this includes the interface between the NDIS, and the other 11 mainstream interfaces. What are the COAG principles? The COAG principles will help us to understand if a support is most appropriately funded by the NDIS or is the responsibility of another service system. The document outlines the roles each service system has to play and their obligations in improving the lives of people with disability in line with the National Disability Strategy. I'd like to point out before we go any further, Savannah, that the document is silent on some of the specific challenges and issues related to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. It's a fairly high level overview of the difference between NDIS funding responsibilities and other service sector responsibilities. It's also due to be reviewed this year, but regardless of what that review brings, it's current and is a crucial part of understanding different service sector responsibilities. The six high-level principles that make up this COAG document include that people with disabilities have the same right to access services as all Australians, that the NDIS will fund supports related to a person's disability support needs, the NDIS will not fund supports that are part of other service systems' universal service obligations, that the NDIS's approach to funding support should be nationally consistent, that we need to take into account different state and territory, statutory and policy responsibilities and acknowledge that for some of those service system interfaces, there will be different operational implications. And then the sixth principle, and this is my favourite, Savannah, is that the interactions for, of people with disability with the NDIS and other service systems should be as seamless as possible, where we see integrated planning and coordinated supports, referrals and transitions, and that this is supported by a non wrong door approach. So as I highlighted before, these bilateral agreements are currently under review. There are some areas where responsibilities are a little grey, And we look forward to those bilateral negotiations giving us greater clarity as we move forward.
0: What's the relationship between this document and the NDIS reasonable and necessary criteria that you outlined before, Fiona?
1: So this COAG principles document helps us to understand whether a support is most appropriately funded through the NDIS or whether it is a responsibility of another service sector. So service providers can look at this document to guide their understanding about whether a support that a person with a disability needs is a specific disability-funded support or whether it is the responsibility of another service sector. So I'll give you an example to help illustrate that. If a person with a disability has a fall and fractures their leg, they will need a health service response and they'll go into hospital, might have that leg fracture set and they might uh, need some rehabilitation services. These are all provided through health. When they return home, if they need some additional support in the first 28 days post-discharge, that would be the health sector's responsibility. If they need some more ongoing support, then that might be where they look to use their NDIS plan or it might be that the fracture has led to a change in their disability support needs and they might need to have um, a review of their plan and their funded support needs. But that initial response to the fracture is a health response. If there are additional ongoing needs due to their disability, then that will be an NDIS-funded support need.
0: And these responsibilities are outlined in this document? Yes, it is. The document lets
1: us know what the responsibilities are of different service sectors and NDIS's responsibility. So, how is the document structured? It's 26 pages and it's not like reading Savannah, but it actually (laughs) starts with those six guiding principles that are overarching principles that... Uh, Relate, no matter whether it's NDIS-funded supports or a mainstream service responsibility. But then each of the 11 separate areas is broken down. So there's generally uh, an overview of that service sector and then there is a table that looks at what's NDIS's responsibilities and what's the other parties or other mainstream government services' responsibilities. So if you look to, as an example, health, Health is responsible for acute and emergency services, subacute services such as palliative care, rehabilitation services, dental services, um, pharmaceutical benefits scheme. And then the NDIS has a complementary role looking at the support that people with disability might need to live in the community. So if they need ongoing support with activities of daily living, home modifications, those sorts of things. The document in relation to health and disability further breaks things down and gives some specific examples. So if someone with a disability is in hospital, generally they won't be using their NDIS funded supports unless they have a specific need that relates to their disability, such as a person with complex communication needs or a person who has behaviours of concern. They may need specific assistance when they're in hospital to access services and that includes both hospital and inpatient service stays as well as visits to the GP etc. Another example is looking at school education. So for a child who is at school the NDIS will provide assistance with their personal care supports, general aids and equipment that they might need throughout their day, transport assistance to and from school and allied health supports to assist that person in to build their functional capacity. The NDIS, however, is not responsible for personalising either learning or supports for the student that primarily relate to educational attainment. For example, school building modifications, transport between school activities, or equipment and therapy that's needed specifically for education purposes.
0: So, from everything you've outlined here, Fiona, it seems that this document really underpins the way that NDIS participants can receive supports from both the mainstream services and specific NDIS-funded supports. Who would you think this document would not only be an essential read for, but a commonly referred to resource? Anyone that's working with people with disability, whether it's in
1: disability-specific support Service industries or in any of these mainstream services will find this reference document useful. So, for board CEOs, senior leaders in disability services, it will really outline for them whether a support is something that they can expect funding uh, for their participant through the NDIS or whether it is another service sector's responsibility. People who are providing intake services within those disability service provider organisations will find it useful. The most important group that will find this reference document invaluable on a daily if not um, weekly basis will be support coordinators. So support coordinators will assist Um, NDIS participants to connect not only to their NDIS-funded supports but to community-based supports and to mainstream services. So it's a really important reference document for them to understand what those different obligations are of different service sectors And of course, it is a useful document for people who work in those mainstream services for them to understand what the NDIS will fund and what the responsibilities are of their service sector.
0: To bring us to the end of our time together, Fiona, are there any final comments you'd like to share?
1: When I sort of look at what is the responsibility between NDIS funded supports and other mainstream government service sectors, I went back to one of the original Productivity Commission reports and I found this quote and I think it kind of puts a context as to why it's important for us to understand what the NDIS will fund and what other service sectors responsibilities are. And this is the quote, it will be important for the NDIS not to respond to problems or shortfalls in mainstream services by providing its own substitute services. To do so would weaken the incentives of the government to properly fund mainstream services for people with disability, shifting the cost to another part of the government. And I think this is one of the things uh, that has caused some of the greatest um, Tension in the introduction of the NDIS is people really understanding what different service systems obligations are to really build on that notion of the national disability strategy, that Australia is inclusive of all Australians, including people with disabilities, that there is supports and work that is being done to build community supports, but also for people to understand what the NDIS will fund, but also what is a reasonable expectation of mainstream services.
0: NDS has received lots of feedback about how knowing this document exists has supported their NDIS transition. So I'd like to thank you, Fiona, for sharing your knowledge and insights about this crucial resource. This brings us to the end of our podcast today about the relationship between NDIS-funded supports and other government services. You can access the CoAG applied principles by searching "principles to determine the responsibilities of the NDIS and other service systems" at coag.gov.au. If you have any questions about this topic or any other NDIS-related questions, please get in touch with the NDS team via the NDS Helpdesk: nds.org.au/helpdesk. Thanks again, Fiona, and see you next time.
1: Is your organisation a member of NDS? National Disability Services is your peak body for service providers across Australia. Our members entrust us to represent them and to unify our collective strength to fight for a more inclusive future for people with disability. Join today via nds.org.au and uncover a range of supports that will assist your organisation navigate the challenges and opportunities of the sector.
0: The Sector Development Podcast is a production by National Disability Services. The podcast is produced with funding from the Victorian State Government's NDIS Transition Support Package.